This would be interesting. We have Ken and Kent. It'll have to be like. It'll be like. Effect and Effect, right? It'll be Ken and Kent. <laughs> Story of my life. Social distortion. <clears throat> I suppose with that we can get rolling um, after our customary uh, entry period. So welcome everybody to the review session for Anti-Oedipus Chapter 3, Section 4, um, Psychoanalysis and Ethnology. So I guess we can jump right into it then. Does anybody have any questions? Awesome. So how about this then? Um, yesterday I was concerned about the word uh, cure. Um, and I've always kind of been skeptical of that word. Uh, and I think some discussion cropped up about that. How do you guys understand the word cure here? Uh, which page are you referring to? Um, the original point was made on 166, 167, but um, it continues into like 168, where he's talking about, where they're talking about uh, schizoanalysis and like the way the medicine man sort of like is doing schizoanalysis without really like trying to, without trying to do it like the losing water we are. I'll tell you what I th think of cure. I think that um, th there's a subtle joke in here in which uh, they're kind of um, I don't, I don't don't quite know how to express this, but they're kind of comparing Lacan's cure to that of Shaman. Yeah. Yeah. And in a broader sense, right? Like the framework of psychoanalysis and like how we're using it for interpretation in contrast to uh, the way the shaman engages society here. We're in the first mention of it is uh, on the why don't you just read it out? Read it out loud. Yeah, I got you. On the contrary, it is evident that the individual in the family, however young, directly invests a social, historical, economic, and political field that is not reducible to any mental structure or effect affective constellation. That is why when one considers pathological cases and processes of cure in primitive societies, it seems to us entirely insufficient to compare them with psychoanalytic procedure by relating the criteria borrowed from the latter. Uh, they go on. It is from the point, it is from this point of view that we must consider many primitive cures, plural. They are schizoanalysis in action. I mean, I think the thing is, it's it maybe two interpretations here, but I don't think they want to superimpose one on the top of the other. That might be one of that. 
Because, you know, one of the things in this book is that it's a superimposition in the sense that desiring production is uh, political economy, right? They say this could still practice this political economy. And, uh, like, flows of desire. Because, you know, yeah, that's a mistake that Wilhelm Reich uh, made, right, according to them, that Wilhelm Reich wasn't able to produce a full theory, right? Even though he did place a primacy to social repression, unlike most of the almost dogmatic psychoanalysis of his day, he... Uh, what he was able, what he didn't have was the production of desire. What he didn't have was desire and production, which allowed him to essentially combine the two, the two sort of realms of social production and sexual production all together, which is one of the things they're trying to do. Um, I think part of it is that that they don't want to sort of impose, where they say, okay, so that's just an example of psychoanalysis. I think I'm a bit lost actually. <laughs> Maybe I just don't know too much about uh, Levi Strauss, but how are they understanding? Um, uh, it has a primitive form of schizoanalysis or something like that. I mean, I think if we want to consider then we have to look at the social field in this regard. So, I mean, the thing about the social field during savage societies, I think it's it's, it's noted pretty clearly that um, savage society, I mean, the decoded flow, so they say decoded flows in terms of capitalism are in excess, right? There's decoded flows everywhere. Well, the whole point of coding in savage societies to avoid decoded flows, that's why there's all these ritualistic practices in savage societies or debt relations, which is, you know, debt relations can be linked pretty clearly to anti-production in this case, where the, the, the debt relation is sort of uh, a coding to prevent um, that decoded flow. And I think part of it if we have to, if we have to understand what they mean by the schizoanalysis medicine, then we need to look at that. Yeah, I agree, and we can definitely move into that passage. But so, uh, one thing I want to think about as we move into that is like, and uh, Ken, maybe you can help us out here since um, I have a feeling you might know know more about this um, than I do, at least. But uh, so, what does we might ask the question, what does psychoanalysis seek to cure? And therefore, what is um, in need of a cure? And then in contrast, uh, what does schizoanalysis take as needing a cure? And what then is uh, a cure there? Uh, I mean, it depends on who you're getting it from. So for Lacan, uh, he, of course, tries to be an edge lord and says that uh, the cure of psychoanalysis is uh, the cure of, be- of believing one can be cured. Um, and so you have things like uh, transitioning the fundamental fantasy, uh, which would be, um, you know, for some, it's uh, uh, like... I mean, the Eros principle, so uh, turning two into one of love, so uh, which is like transference or something. Um, uh, and sometimes I wonder if it's the cure from demanding things. Uh, but, but yeah, it, it, and also sometimes it seems like the cure is the cure of idealizing things. Um so, like, you don't uh, experience, like, I don't know, should we saw to a certain extent. And uh, so you also don't get your hopes let down or something like that. 
but I, as regards to what I mean, sometimes it's like the cure uh, to attachment, but I don't know how this relates to uh, you know the cure of to losing watery or of schizoanalysis. Yeah, and we'll look at the passage in a minute. And um, of course, anyone, if you'd like to jump in, please do. Uh, no muting here. I suppose what I'm kind of wondering is like, the cure for psychoanalysis, as I understand, seems to be something like um, subjecting yourself to like the one-on-one -on -one therapy, right? Where you go into like a room with a psychoanalyst and they... Um, their interpretation and that leads you to something like a cure and in that way right like a problematic um, is supposed to be discovered and in this case oedipus that's well it's it's supposed to be it's all it's, it's supposed to be the talking cure in the sense that why it's called the talking cure is that you know you discover so you know you have in freud you have primal repression right and that's what i mean <clears throat> repression is is latent because <clears throat> it has the time to come back and it is potential to come back. Um, so it's, it's about, it's about essentially, uh, it's like bringing forth to knowledge almost. It's, it's, it, it, I don't know. At least I see it as a part of coming to consciousness to bringing something into consciousness as a cure that are no cures your symptom or something like that. But so if you say that over at the con server, you're going to get rebuked. Um, because uh, the the lingo of making the unconscious conscious is like taboo, um, like <laughs> the the unconscious uh, unconscious knowledge is sexuality is the the truth of the unconscious is sexuality for Lacan, and the truth of sexuality is that it's a lack in being. Um, like sometimes the cure in psychoanalysis for Lacan is realizing that the the big other is also lacking. Uh, it's like acceptance and commitment therapy, but for your lack. Yeah, but um, I, I don't know. I'm not super well-read in Freud by any means, but well, I mean, what I described—that's Freudian therapy, though, right? <laughs> In what they're talking about in Antiochus? No, in terms of what I was talking about, to bringing the repressions to a consciousness. Yeah, I mean, so uh, the talking cure came out of that one case study, and and he described, and it was also described as like a thorough chimney sweeping. What was the case study? Yeah, it might have been Dora. Um, or the other one. Um, but I mean, I honestly think the cure is, uh, in what psychoanalysis is, is not a, uh, I mean, it's not a monolith. So, yeah, definitely some circles, it's in definitely in psychodynamics today. They talk about the cure making as being making the unconscious conscious. Yeah, it's um, quote. That's quote from Jung, actually. Even yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, uh, 
I, I think in this case, at least, I think, you know, the, I mean, for for uh, uh, Deleuze and Gattari, in terms of the main thesis of the book, the cure is, I mean, the cure is the repression for them, right? That's why they have the concept of the double bind, which they take it as, you know, you, you, you have two undesirable options. You either go full alienation or you, you know, you, you pass on your Oedipus complex to everyone else, right? And, you know, they almost defer all the concepts of psychoanalysis, except, you know, they pose the question of genealogy, asking where these come from. And uh, in this regard, I mean, it's, it is to say, as I think it's said before, but it is a process. Schizoanalysis is a process of curing you from the cure. And that would... Yeah, and I like that definition. I like... Um the contrast too between between Freud and Lacan because that I, I think Ken's probably right about that right it's, the cure is not monolithic whether it's Jung, Freud or um, Lacan or some other psychotherapeutic school but I think we're starting to see some common elements here in terms of like making the unconscious conscious of um, talking of a talking cure and uh of the role of the analyst and the analyzed, which might set us up for looking at how schizoanalysis kind of deviates, particularly in this um, uh, so-called primitive culture. Uh, before we go on, uh, I just wanted to say that, you know, it's interesting reading Looking Awry, because in there, he talks about there being three stages to the, um, the uh, an analysis process um, in Lacan's work. And I, I'm not exactly sure what they are, but I, I'm going to venture, uh, you know, what I remember is something like the first one, I think, was interpretation, and the second one is traversing the fantasy, and the third one is the synthome. Is that right, Hermes? Ken? I don't know if I've read enough Lacan to make that judgment well this is from zizek interpreting lacan yeah yeah so i've only read thoughts almost six seminars now um i mean interpretation definitely um comes in there like there's there and and it's given this sort of uh, primacy sometimes where you're like you have to find the perfect moment for the interpretation um uh, and, you know, uh, sometimes what that interpretation does is uh, get one to traverse one's fantasy, and then that uh, leads one into like a subjective destitution. And then from there, uh, you can create your own. The idea is that you can create your own master signifier. Um, I believe I'll need to look at the structure of. Uh, the analyst again, but I believe that's the end result. Is the product is a new master signifier. So the way Zizek presents it is that you know the interpretation didn't work, and then the and so then he came up with the the fantasy traversing the fantasy, and that didn't work. So he came up with the synthome idea. So basically, is, he's going through sorry. symbolic imaginary and real in these different stages of the unfolding of his uh, theory. And uh, 
and and you know, and then the impression I get is that this is all a blaming the victim kind of strategy. That since since none of these things worked, uh, basically the theory is casuistry explaining why none of these things work. In other words, they're saying that it's inevitable that it's not going to work. Well, the whole method is uh, reductive in nature. Uh, it's an analytic reductive method. Um, reductive how? Uh, I mean, just quite generally and almost, and in the way you were just talking about how you find a, a, a cause for the thing and now the thing has, uh, uh, it isn't seen as significant anymore. I mean, you just, you if we go back on the language we've been using, like traversing the fantasy, uh, realizing the lack in your being. Um, uh, I mean, I guess the only one that doesn't fit into that necessarily is a new master signifier, but that master signifier comes about from subjective destitution, which is uh, the the symbolic, uh, you know, sort of breaking down. Um, and... Uh, Zizek gives a nice example of that, doesn't he, in that uh, one crucifixion movie. Um, but but it's reductive in this way. So instead of like uh, amplifying the thing uh, like Jung would do, where he like uh, would personify some sort of uh, ego dystonic affect uh, and like try to make it its own person and then have a conversation with it. Um, that's not, you know, realizing the lack in your being or something like that. So, someone's typing. Could they mute themselves, please? No, it's in my background. Uh, my wife okay. and I share the same room and she's working. Oh, yeah. okay. It's okay. I mean, I think with regards to thinking about paralogisms in this way, you know, you're going to have to uh, re, uh, re, re, um, you know, like, can you give me your argument again? It's uh, kind of a bit confused. I mean, the third paralogism, at least the way they talk about it, is in terms of the incorrect usage of the conjunctive synthesis of consummation. It's, uh, it's, it's a bi-univocalization, right, rather than a nomadic and polyvocal. So I say, uh, you know, the whole idea of I'm of a superior race rather than I am everyone and I have been everyone, right? Rather than I've been, you know, I've gone through the deliriums of all history by being affected by these intensities and said, I've only, I'm only this one person. Yeah, I, I, think, I think I can lizard the fantasy. I'm sorry? I think, I think what you just described comes under traversing the fantasy. For for Lacan, uh, sorry, I was talking about. No, I was talking about the paralogism, the third paralogism in the case of uh, Antiochus. No, no, I, yeah, I understand that, but I was just saying that the 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 idea that um, you know that you are. Um, You know the 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 whole thing of of being a you know thinking you're a king, thinking you're Napoleon, all that that's traversing the fantasy. Yeah, I don't I don't know much about 
I'm not that well read in Lacan, so I can't say or argue with that. But that's not really what I heard Varun saying. Um, what I heard Varun saying is, uh, or like I guess advocating for, um, is allowing yourself to be affected by uh, these intensities instead of um, calling them fantasies, sort of. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, exactly. That's, that's 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 one of the things the points they're trying to make with the correct use is that it it's it's non-segregative. The thing about a bi-unit vocalization is that it's it's a segregation essentially. You know, the bi-unit vocalization is to say two things under one, one voice. I think that's the example that Brooks likes to give. But um, in terms of bi-unit vocalization, that's that's also what they say. You know, I think they also talk about racism as an example of this, right? That you say, I'm of the superior race, I'm of one race, rather than the schizo-revolutionary who goes and he's, he, he you know, he's a, you know, he associates himself with intensities because he's, he's got, I don't know, they compare it to the zero, right? So he's got a greater degree as opposed to the full zero of catatonia. And, uh, uh, it's, it, 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 it is uh, the sense that, oh, maybe then, 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 then there is a connection about racism and stuff. But uh, the whole thing about the schizo-polyvocal nomadic synthesis is that you know they're being able to consummate all intensities and then they associate with it. Right, so I'm becoming a woman, or uh, I, I don't know. They give an example of uh, I'm becoming Negro as well. But and these are considered actualities for those guitar because you know they they judge things based on affectivity, and in in that sense of affectivity, it's 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 not segregative, as opposed to I mean, the racist sort of use. Yeah, and I think I can explain. I think so. First of all, I agree with what you're saying about the bi-un, uh, the the paralogism is biunivocality and that, um, and. I went back and I think it's chapter two, section six, yeah, near the end. The um, so like the reason I, I wrote about the the third paralogism in the chat is because when uh, when Ken was describing a master signifier, that to me sounds like a third paralogism, and the reason I think that goes back to chapter two, section six, where they write. Um, and this is one page one eleven in the penguin. So they, they start out with like whence the third paralogism, the paralogism of application, which fits as the precondition for Oedipus by establishing a set of biunivocal relations between the determinations of the social field and the familial determinations, thereby making possible and inevitable the reduction of libidinal investments to the eternal daddy mommy. So right, this is very much what Varun was just describing. And then they go on to say the three errors concerning desire are called lack, law, and signifier. It is one and the same error in idealism that forms a pious conception of the unconscious. So you can already see, right, the third, um, the third error seems to be a signifier. Uh, they continue... Well, I mean, I think, I think, I mean, I think we need to be careful, though. I mean, in terms of signifiers, you know, they are, they they have a whole system of signification too, right? In terms of, and the, that system of signification for them is the body without organs, and you know, whether you're living in, where you're talking about associates and stuff, where it is created by the debt relations of anti-production, or it's created by anti-production in desiring production. Um, 
the sense that essentially uh, it's 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 it, it's 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 a form of coding, right? So the 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 bachelor who's only able to who's who's not able to you know just randomly sleep with the girl next door. I mean, sorry, the the, the married man who's not uh, right able to sleep with the girl next door. That's a form of signification playing a role in desire and production, right? And I mean, I mean it's it's it, so. I mean, could you, sorry, can you just like uh, restate your argument almost? Yeah, let me let me read you the the final point um, from that section. They they continue from the moment desire is made to de- depend on the signifier, it is put under the yoke of a despotism whose effect is castration. There, were, there where one recognizes the stroke of the signifier itself. But the sign of desire is never signifying. It exists in the thousands of productive breakflows that never allow themselves to be signified with the unary stroke of castration. It is always a point sign of many dimensions, polyvocity as the basis for punctual semiology. Later on, they talk a little bit more about what schizoanalysis should do. But basically what I'm saying is like, it sounds to me that what Ken and Kent have described in terms of uh, Lacan and the master signifier is very much this um, this point where desire is made to depend on the on the signifier being put back under the yoke of a despotism. That is to say, like it sounds to me like what Lacan is saying is like maybe you don't. Well, what what Hermes said about Lacan, to be fair. Um, is that right? Maybe you don't need Oedipus, but you need this master signifier by which to um, sort of like demarcate the reality you're going to deal with, well, demarcate the psychological you're going to deal with, right? The social and psychic. I suppose Lacan might not say the real, but the information as to the um, yeah, information would work. Experience, social, psychic content. You know, I would say that it's uh, it's that would go with the, the dis- illegitimate use of the disjunctive synthesis or uh, the paralogism of the disjunctive synthesis, right? Because it's the, it's, it's the exclusive and restrictive uh, rather than the inclusive and non-restrictive. And, you know, that's essentially like, you know, that's, that's, that's a despotic signifier on the body without organs in a way. Or uh, a double bind, for example. Or, the, you know, it, even like you know, the, the, one of the one of the things that they talk about in terms of the Oedipus complex of how Oedipus complex occurs is with the when anti-production basically records uh, a repressive representation, right? When there's the recording or the Oedipus code on the body without organs, that the repressing representation that gets recorded on the body without organs, right? The Oedipus code that forces, you know, that forces uh, desire into certain locales or pushes desire into certain into certain variations. Yeah, and I think that's why these three paralogisms seem to be caught up in each other. But um, they, the reason I think it's the, the the point of signification is more directly in the third, um, here at least, is because they're making the distinction between um, the third error, which is the uh, signifier, in contrast to the point sign, uh, the point sign having many dimensions and a polyvocity. Uh, and for the second synthesis, it's a difference between the syllogism of commandment and the paralogism of law. 
which either way still gets in it still gets into what you're talking about in terms of recording and how that recording um you know sort of like what it does and those are pages 111 to 112 for anyone who's um interested and the second synthesis is talked about page 110 and actually in, in terms of a cure this might be interesting for our, our discussion too the practical problem of schizoanalysis is then to ensure the contrasting reversion restoring the syntheses of the unconscious to their imminent use Yeah, that's essentially that, you know, it's not a transcendent use. It's, you know, they have that pretty much outlined Kantian critique from at least the three syntheses, right? You know, the, the term synthesis comes from, you know, if you remember synthesis of unity of apperception and all that stuff from Kantian terminology. But uh, with regards to Kant, it's like... Uh, the, the reason they say it's it's a correct use or the reason they say that it's a syllogism or the reason they say that it's an imminent use is because they've found they've basically tried to find the real transcendental conditions at least my hypothesis is that the way desire works if, if you read it if you, i think i was talking about this earlier also but if you read it you know through Deleuze's reading of maimon and places like difference and repetition and stuff my hypothesis is that desire works in the same way that uh reason works for kant in the sense that it's it, it, at least, but you know, desire is productive, and so from Maimon's reading, Maimon challenged Kant, asking him to say that uh, he had to give an account for how reason can be ge- genetic or productive as well, and so that's part of what Deleuze is doing with uh, Deleuze and Guattari. They're doing with uh, desire being productive, but and it produces the conditions of the unconscious itself, and hence they find imminent criteria, right? So they say if, but they say it's the transcendent criteria that creates lack or it creates forms of repression or it creates it creates errors and they're going to analyze at least in the social field how these criteria these transcendent criteria or incorrect criteria come to bear center so, i see the rule of schizoanalysis as being you know as you could almost see there you could almost see an implicit as leotard says you can see an implicit critique of marx here right right they they're they're concerned about how it's struck how it needs to be structured on imminent criteria and uh, yeah, they're not. I mean, and then so they're going to structure the whole social field almost on the correct imminent uses of the unconscious, rather than structuring the social field in the sense of, I don't know, uh, equality for society. Yeah, and I, I think that actually gets toward like a two-step, on basic idea of a cure here, and one of them being to preserve or restore a sort of syllogistic. Um, level for the three syntheses, right? To, to take them away from a paralogism and restore them. And then uh, the second part being, uh, like you were talking about with the, the social field, um, and we're going to see this in what the shaman does, right? Or we've already seen what the shaman does, is looking at the social connection and context that is engaging and even... Um, in some sense, the territorializings related to those three syntheses. I think that might be where we start to get at, like, what schizoanalysis takes as a cure, or at least what a cure for schizoanalysis might begin to look like. Yeah, I, th- I think 
I mean, there's a great line in A Thousand Plateaus. If you read The Body Without Rogan's chapter, right, they say, or psychoanalysis says, uh, stop, we haven't found ourselves yet. Schizoanalysis says, no, go forth, continue the process. We haven't found our body without organs yet. But, you know, it's, it's, it is sort of like a pushing to a limit, right? The, the schizophrenic limit that is. Yeah, definitely not the Oedipal limit. But uh, with that, I was going to say, maybe we want to move into what the shaman does to start looking at. Because I think that is one of the main things for this book, right? Is like, what is schizoanalysis? What does it do? Um, Does anybody have any other thoughts before we move into uh, the passage on the shaman? Any questions or remarks at this point? Yeah, I mean, these, these, these recap sessions should be to ask questions from any part of the book. So that would help us, actually. Well, I just I just want to mention that uh, I mentioned Zizek's interpretation of Lacan's cure, and I see it as kind of casuistry for the fact that he doesn't have a cure; it doesn't work. Um, and uh, so, so the. Um, the point of, to my mind, the point of this whole chapter, you know, trying to keep the, you know, kind of forest type view uh, instead of getting lost in the trees, is um, is that the whole names of the father thing in Lacan doesn't work. And it, it, I think what's interesting about their approach is that they're continually saying, oh, Lacan's all right, but it's all of his followers that got it wrong. Well, names of the father is a core Lacanian concept. And even though they say, oh, the followers got it wrong and Lacan didn't, actually they're taking a swipe at him. And I, and I see it as a kind of counter trick to the, uh, you know, the, the tricks of Lacan in the, in the sense that they knew they were going to take him in. And they did take him in because, uh, you know, Deleuze uh, recounts this meeting he has with Lacan where, where, after Lacan makes him wait for a long time, Lacan summons him, and after making him wait for a long time, he he says to him, "Well, all of my all of my followers got it wrong. Really, who I need is you." So he yeah, saw Deleuze as a as as his key follower, at least according to Deleuze's uh, report. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think Dan Smith wrote about that as well. Yeah, I think I think even in uh, Lacan's lectures, he did a lot of, a lot of lectures on Deleuze's book uh, "Coldness on Cruelty" and his book on masochism and stuff like that. And and, and uh, Deleuze did make a advance there because uh, you know uh, I read a part where Lacan was saying that say, uh, sadism and masochism were were. Um, uh, complementary opposites, whereas Deleuze says they're not, and gives a really good argument why they are not, as most people think, the op- you know, the the inverse of each other. You know, I wanted to say too, Kent, um, to your point, I've noticed that as well, where they they'll say the, Deleuze and Guadri will write things like. After Lacan loosened the bolts of Oedipus, why do his followers tighten them? Or actually, in this chapter, in this very section, section four, they'll write, 
Um, and this is a very curious part, too, because they only give Lacan so much credit. Um, they write something like, did the followers of Lacan uh, edipalize his doctrine? And in that way, sometimes it seems to me like the progress Lacan made seems to also be like in preservation of something. So like, like I said earlier, it seems to say like, well, maybe we don't need Oedipus, right? But you do need this master signifier. And like that doesn't, maybe that doesn't have to be Oedipus, but, um, you know, it still seems to construct a kind of like, uh, uh, like a still like a, what I, what I was saying was the third paralogism, but like a, you know, the, the same problem of a, a despot signifier or like, as we're going to see in this uh, section, right? A representation that takes us away from what's going on. Yeah, I mean, um, I, th- I think there's a lot of hits aimed at Jacques Lacan, like Miller, and people like that. And I, 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 I think Miller has a reputation for being like a super dogmatic uh, Lacanian and stuff. And I think, uh, I think there is a real controversy even in inner Lacanian circles with Miller and stuff like that. So yeah, you may be on something. That's the thing. Well, with the- it just strikes me that you know they're constantly saying no, Lacan got it all right, but his followers messed up. But um, but actually, they're attacking the whole name of the father. They're basically saying if you go back and look what the shamans did. The whole name of the file, their doctrine doesn't make any sense because basically what the shamans are doing is that they they actually take into account the whole lineage and the place in society of the person they're curing. They don't. don't. They just don't talk about the the mother and the father. Yeah, and it's also it's curious that they call Lacan's ideas a doctrine, right? So like, there's a way in which they give Lacan credit distinct from his followers, and then there's a way that they seem to also sort of attack Lacan in some ways, or at least, and I think this is what we've been focused on this discussion. There's a way that Lacan's ideas still pose a sort of still pose a paralogism or a way of um. Uh, sort of afflicting these three syntheses. There's still a need for schizoanalysis, even with Lacan, whether or not his followers are in the room. So, so from from the point of view of this cure question, which I think is a very good question, um, to me, the the whole thing kind of revolves around whether you know this uh, valorization of schizophrenia that the uh, Deleuze and Guattari uh, do. Um, is the same as the idea of the synthome, which is the the fact you know kind of enjoy your own symptom that you there there is no cure you just have to learn to live with it. Um, you know, so, and I, and, I was just going to put I, an addendum to that. There is there is no cure from the lack of one's being. Sorry, say it again. There's no cure from the lack of one's being. Right, but you have to assume that that's true. I mean, Deleuze yeah. and Guattari are deny, denying that. Yeah. That's the lack the whole... of want something positive. I think that's where the fundamental difference is. 
possibly between them is that you know Lacan thinks that the the lack of being is uh you know functionally incurable and so like you're saying uh it's to kind of learn how to enjoy the symptom of one's lack of being um whereas Toulouse and Guattari don't take up that position, so therefore, maybe there can be a cure for whatever's going on. Yeah, and that might be a great point to launch into this um, this discussion of the shaman, as I think we're already beginning to. So, right, like the this discussion of um, sorry, we've talked about like there's primitive cures, plural, which is interesting too. It's not the cure, it's the cures um, that are schizoanalysis and in, in, in action. And so they, they give us this story about um, a medicine man and a soothsayer uh, diagnosing and warring off the effects of the incisor, launching into a social, a social analysis concerning the territory and its environs, the chieftainship and its sub-chieftainships. That's a mouthful. The lineages and their segments, the alliances and affiliations, they constantly bring to light desire in its relations with political and economic units. The very point on which, moreover, the witness, the witnesses try to mislead them. It's like one thing I'm already getting out of this is like schizoanalysis doesn't just it doesn't take the person as being sick. It thinks it seems to think there's a larger disruption in the social field that just happens to be, you know, this person happens to be one of the people stepping forth to say something about it. So we should keep in mind, you know, uh, Levi-Strauss's differentiation between the bricolure and the, uh, the engineer, which in this case would be, you know, the shaman and the medical doctor. Yeah, in that sense, too, like, and what we described in terms of Lacan and, and the Freudian, and even I think what we can say about the Jungian, I don't see them going so far as to say, like, we've got to do something. This sounds to me like part of schizoanalysis is saying we've got to do something about society, you know, and look at the territories and the structures and, you know, something's something's amiss socially and this person is just um you know just one instantiation of it right as opposed to like i think psychoanalysis is much more individual right where it's less about what's awry socially and it's more about um you know what's going on in your head so to speak whether or not you know oedipus is on the table right it's it's at a personal level not a social level I would want to add on to that and say that maybe it's not necessarily about an individual versus social uh, thing, um, that it's, it's more about uh, their opinions uh, on, you know, uh, macro-systemic culture. Um, like, so uh, maybe the psychoanalysts, including Freud, uh, including Jung, uh you know don't think about changing 
the the social circumstances. Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because I want to quote Foucault in the um, in his introduction. Foucault writes, and this is part of his bullet point list of how not to live a fascist life. <laughs> but um, Foucault writes. Do not demand of politics that it restores the so-called rights of the individual as philosophy has defined them. The individual is the product of power. What is needed is to so-called de-individualize by means of multiplication and displacement, diverse combinations. The group must not be the organic bond uniting hierarchicalized individuals, but a constant generator of de-individualization. And I yeah. think it's, oh, good. I think that's uh, that's Nietzscheanism. That's that's one of the big parts of Nietzscheanism of this book is the problem with the group dynamics that I think they're trying to uh, criticize in a way, right? It's that that sense that uh, I mean, it's 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 the sense that that's that's why we have right uh, associates or social production because organized and they even talk about this in terms of studying history to through contingencies and stuff like that and these assemblages in the sense that essentially we need to understand uh that you know if, if we have a group formation we can't study the group it's almost it's almost like complexity theory right it's all non-linear dynamics like difference and repetition right so if we have a group we can't study the group by just taking out the individual parts there's there's this gestalt aspect to it like that we need to look at the relationships that are formed in between in between these group dynamics that the group uh, plays a much larger it's it, it, the, the parts don't add up to the whole of the group right the group plays a much larger role and you know it goes back to the whole idea that there are flows everywhere these flows get moved and these material fluxes get changed and stuff so it's the group dynamics that you know that people latch on to and influences each other so it's a very Nietzschean thesis that they have. They want to sort of uh, get rid of this in a way. I mean, I, I want to get rid. I want to get rid of this, but almost fix this scenario that that's in place. Well, and, and look at what Foucault is prescribing here. Look at, look at what he's saying. The group should be. The group must quote. The group must not be the organic bond uniting hierarchized individuals, but. A constant generator of de-individualization, end quote, which I think is exactly what you're describing in the sense that if we're going to look at groups and do group analysis, we're talking about degenerate, um, we're talking about generating de-individualization as opposed to using the group to unite hierarchy and therefore to individualize under hierarchy, right? And I think this medicine man um, example of schizoanalysis. I think that's kind of a little bit of what they're showing here. So, you know, it it's pretty hard to understand what's going on in in these other cultures, you know, the, the these more primitive cultures talking about shaman, but if you if you transpose that into you know, the western society then you have the the relationship between uh, allopathy and homeopathy, for instance. And uh, in America, the American Medical Association spent a lot of time uh, trying to destroy homeopathy and saying it was a kind of shamanism. But then an interesting thing happened, which was acupuncture came up. And... Uh, 
And so a lot of these doctors went to China and watched people being operated on with no anesthetics, just using um, they they the you know the Chinese would use use acupuncture in the uh, in surgeries. And so there was this existential proof that something was working um, in acupuncture, even though they didn't know how to do it. But since something was working in acupuncture, even though they didn't understand it, they 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 decided to allow the licensing of acupuncture, whereas they had suppressed homeopathy. So. You know, if you take acupuncture and homeopathy as kind of like the Western examples, well-documented Western examples of something like a shamanistic approach, you know, holistic medicine, more or less, um, then then you can then you can kind of like apply this um, this analysis they're doing to something concrete that we know more about that's part of our culture. Yeah, and that's kind of where I struggle, though, too, is that I think this 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 example is here to show us something that might actually be missing in our culture, right? This idea that, because this sounds to me very much like what the, the medicine man is doing here with the soothsayer especially if there's two people doing this, that's already kind of unique. But um, it looks to me like what they're doing is they're going through all these higher, they're going through all the territorializings. They're talking to different people in the society. They're doing something fully immersive at that level of like, just like Foucault said, actually, I think they're de-individualizing. Um, well, if, if there is any individualizing going on here, they're de-individualizing the group and putting, they're looking at this collectivity um, to look at what's gone, I think, um, what the symptoms are in the social field at that level of, of what what seems to be impeding the three syntheses in that manner. Well, the thing that is like that in homeopathy is the mayas, that there is intergenerational transmission of disease in homeopathy. Basically, homeopathy had the same problem, that, you know, it used the placebo effect. And, um, and, and what's interesting is that the studies that differentiate the, the placebo effect, you know, I, I can't remember the numbers, but there's only like five percentage points difference between placebo and causality in a lot of studies. But they ran into the same problem, is that using the placebo effect, they could not, um, there were a whole bunch of patients they could not cure. And so uh, Hahnemann came up with the idea of the, the, uh, the, um, the miasms as a way of um, dealing with that uh, problem. And, uh, and, and what's interesting is that the miasms are very similar to the three anamorphic objects in um, in Lacan and Zizek. Yeah, but even, even that doesn't sound quite like this example where, like, 
Yeah, there's the medicine man is dealing with somebody who's struggling with not being. Um, sorry, like when, when we look at this language, uh, and this is somebody that quoting. Uh, divination becomes a form of social analysis in the course of which hidden struggles between individuals and factions are brought to light in such a way that they can be treated by traditional ritual methods. The vague nature of mystical beliefs allowing them to be manipulated in relation to a great number of social situations. End quote. It seems that the pathological incisor is indeed mainly that of the maternal grandfather, but the latter was a great chief. His successor, the so-called real chief, had had to relinquish the throne for fear of being bewitched, and his would-be heir, intelligent and ambitious, does not exercise the power. The actual chief is not the real chief. As for the sick K, the person uh, who went to the, uh, the medicine man, he has not been able to assume the role of mediator that could have made him a candidate for chief. Uh, everything becomes... Yeah, and then they move into how uh, colonialization kind of destroys this. But uh, this level of social analysis where it seems to me that the schizoanalysis is looking at the different structures and territorializings in the society and, like, uncovering what's going on in the alliant and the um, and the affiliated and uncovering what's going on um, with these syntheses here and trying to figure out like where the congestion is and how it reached this person and you know th this broader social problem that seems to me to be a major element of what this cure for schizoanalysis is going to look like especially in terms of like the, the unconscious yeah I you know I agree with you it, it's just that the problem is, you know, they picked out one example from the anthropological literature that was like what they, um, what what they foresaw as being, you know, more like schizoanalysis. But there's a whole bunch of cultures out there. What they do in terms of uh, shamanism and uh, and folk medicine are all very very different from each other, and so. You know, it, it's hard to it's hard, and and the bear the cultural barrier is almost insurmountable because we don't know the language, we don't know the, you know, a lot of times the anthropological reports are not uh, uh, reliable. So, so you know, I'm just saying that if if we tr if we translate it into the problems we have in medicine today, in you know physical medicine. Uh, you can see that the same kinds of problems and distinctions exist in our own culture, uh, which we can understand more readily. And um, you know, you know, like for instance, the uh, what's interesting about it is that the you know the 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 shaman, say the homeopathist or the acupuncturist. Um, you know because you know they're they're like the bricolure and the engineer is like the the doctor uh, of of medicine with an MD, but but you know there's overreach and excess in the medical system. You know if you went into it, there'd be you know 
like a lot of the deaths that occur are because of medication that are wrong that is wrongly prescribed you know there's just a, a unnecessary surgeries i mean you could go on and on about the ill side effects of modern medicine but modern medicine says that oh we you know what we do works because we have these studies that back it up but then if you look at the studies the 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 difference between what they consider causal and what's what's uh placebo is only a few percentage points so there's a whole kind of mess here in our own system that we could look at just to see this same kind of thing. And and then we can wonder, well, what would schizoanalysis do in that situation? Well, one thing it would do is it would take into account the family situation, not just concentrate on the person who has the mental illness. Yeah, and I, I think what I'm getting at is like, this example should point us toward what you're saying, right? So like, if we want to talk about like what schizoanalysis would do today, right? Um, at this level, it seems to me that like schizoanalysis takes on a social analysis rather than a purely individual analysis. It's tracing the flows and break flows and the different structures and territorializings that are part of the social field. And therefore it's, Kind of like Foucault said, it's not it's not about trying to individualize these things. And if there are paralogisms or um, you know problems, it's not about trying to individualize those problems um, or assign them to anybody per se. It's about trying to de-individualize and look at what's going on with the group and these uh, the way that things like uh, supposing there is a despot signifier, looking how that's affecting people in the society and not just the person, right? So it's not the analyzed as the person, it's all these different people. So it's almost to me like a schizoanalysis is taking the point of departure to be the social field. Um, yeah, I agree with that. I would add on though. I mean, so yeah, definitely it's about social analysis in a way where you, whereas everything's always plugged into the social field and hence we get a primacy to social, social repression. You know, you see that in anti-psychiatry too, like already Lang and stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, it's almost like, I mean, it, what they were saying is there's almost something uh, aristocratic about their viewpoint, right? Because back to that whole idea to be great is to be misunderstood and all that Nietzscheanism. Um, I think also what we need to consider is this aspect that, you know, and it's, it's going back to this idea of groups, right? Another big influence, I mean, big part of this was uh, the work uh, Felice Guattari did with Jean Aury uh, in Laborde, right? Group fantasies and sub subject groups and subjugated groups. He did a lot of group theory work with Sartre, uh, taking, taking theories from Sartre and Heidegger and understanding how... Uh, this so a subject group is is a group that's always risking its breaking apart, but uh, it's it's always open to the outside field, and it's not hierarchized like a subjugated group that is it has a strict leader, right? Like so, a military official, but a subject group constructs its own sort of group fantasies, while the subjugated group is is it's subjugated essentially by a veritable leader, um, and that's part of it. Uh, I, I think the thing is that essentially. 
what's you know it is revolutionary because if you consider the social field as well as you know you have to you can't just change the individual you have to change the social field itself that's part of the analysis the analysis is to change the social field and it is very much connected almost in a rhizomatic way to the political economy and hence there is something very political about this book it's revolutionary charged in the sense that the schizo is the revolutionary for them and you see that all coming out in terms of their analysis you know lacan has no potential for revolution but it's 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 teeming in schizoanalysis it's just overflowing in schizoanalysis yeah and if we if we walk that back to what ken was saying about like so let's look at our modern society right um, you know, one thing we can do that I think schizoanalysis does do um, here we go, and they actually write this, the discovery of desires and conscious investments of the social field, right? So we look at the revolutionary and reactionary um, investments, the cathetsis going on of desiring production so like, right after they, they, they do this um consideration of the sort of a primitive schizoanalysis they move into like what a barrier for doing this in our society would be which is the edipalization right and i think this is a we got a little bit farther than this yesterday but that seemed to be where we left off um trying to understand at least was this larger point about edipalization and like the barrier for that the barrier that edipalization um, and even things like the the incest uh, prohibition, so right, like social and psychic repression, the the challenges that pose to something like schizoanalysis. But maybe before we move that, are there other thoughts on what we've talked about so far, or anybody want to ask questions or go somewhere else in the discussion? Yeah, I mean, this is open to saying pretty much anything about anything because I mean, you can bring up anything from the whole book. At least it's better if we do that because this is, that's what we do in the recap sessions. Crickets. Um, so then, I guess it's time to talk about Oedipus, right? Because we, um, we, we don't do that enough, do we? <laughs> <laughs> um... So I guess to review, right, like they start out by saying that what was strange for them about looking at this interpretation of the medicine man is that at first they thought it was going to be Oedipal. Uh, right there, we said the point of departure seemed Oedipal. It was only the point of departure for us, conditioned to say Oedipus every time someone speaks to us, the father, mother, grandfather. So, right, so we're starting out with this problem of like, and this is kind of like what Varun was saying yesterday in terms of like, it's a problem when you, when you don't even, it's a problem when you think Oedipus isn't real, right? But on the flip side, it's also a problem if you don't realize Oedipus, right? If you don't realize that there is an Oedipalization, it seems to me that like even Deleuze and Guattari here seem to be saying like, we're so suspicious of Oedipus that this, this take even looked Oedipal to us. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it, it just goes to show how deeply ingrained all this stuff is. Uh, you know, I was actually kind of lost. I think I did some ruminating on this for a while. And I, I think I have a theory, at least for what they mean by the fact that they say that it would be incorrect to assume that Oedipus is off the prohibition of incest and the nuance that they're attacking here in the sense that, you know, uh, so I think we need to be, so at least when I was first reading this, I thought, Oh, so so as soon as you come out of chapter two, you realize, oh, so it's uh, it's uh, it's the prohibition of incest, right? That's that's where it happens. But now they talk about something else. They say it would be incorrect to go from the prohibition of incest to assume Oedipus in that in that regard. So I thought that was interesting. So at least my take on that is that essentially, um, what I mean in, in savage societies. It's, you know, it's safe to assume, at least this is what Holland says also, it's like, see, you know, it's already Oedipalized. We're already in an Oedipalized pers- uh, perspective to look at these, you know, it's almost, a, it's a form of, et- of uh, ethnocentrism in a way to look at, uh, you look at the savage societies and you, conc- and you conclude that the prohibition of incest is negative, right? To make that conclusion is uh, is a form of ethnocentrism. And, you know, for a savage society, the, the, the portion of incest can be productive in that regard. And in the sense that, you know, it's it's, cause, it's, forced, it's causing people to, to look at, to basically combine with other families or, or more affiliative relationships. Uh, but more importantly, it's, is it safe to assume that in a certain situation, right, they didn't have a nuclear family there. And uh, at least the family was structured in a different way. So... I mean, intensities were structured in a different way. So it's safe to say, maybe at that point in time, uh, the prohibition of incest didn't cause Oedipus. You know, the way the entire society was structured was differently. So we can't assume every time from the prohibition of incest something like that happened. So in that social situation, it's something else in the prohibition of incest. Hello, can you guys hear me? Yes. Oh, sorry about that, man. I think I blew a fuse or something. Uh, did you did you did you hear what I said? I heard. I caught a quarter of it, <laughs> so I might have to ask you to repeat. <laughs> it's funny because when you came back, uh, you're much louder. Lucky you! You have no choice but to listen to me. <laughs> should I repeat that? I don't know if everyone else wants to listen to that long ramble. <laughs> Um, okay, so, you know, I'd just like to reset for a moment and say that, um, you know, we keep talking about the incest taboo like it really was something. And uh, because, you know, everyone's, you know, they're making such a big deal out of it. So, um I mean, I think it's worthwhile remembering that the whole point of the incest taboo in patriarchal society is so that the patriarchs know who they're... Hang on. We just lost power. Oh, it looks uh, like they, they just lost power. Uh, yep, lost power. You lost power, but you're still on. That's amazing. I Like I said, lucky you. <laughs> So anyway, to just continue the okay. So I mean, I'm trying to go back to basics here. Basics are mm-hmm. 
the reason that the incest taboo is there is so that the patriarchs know whose children are theirs, so the patriarchy can continue. So controlling women is all about knowing whose, uh, you know, whose children they're having. Um, now, the thing about the incest taboo is that there are these corner cases in it, like, uh, you know, father-daughter and uh, mother-son incest. So it, it turns out just statistically, uh, there's a lot more father-daughter incest than there is mother-son. Uh, if it happens, it's, it, you know, even when they estimate the incidents, uh, non-reported incidents, it's very small compared to father-daughter. And so, um, and so, you know, everyone's, you know, you constantly hear in these conversations where people are talking about having relations, sexual relations with their mothers, as if that's on people's mind. But it's not true. It's not on people's mind. And it's a very rare phenomena, even in our society. So, um, so I, I think it's just worth kind of remembering that when we're talking about this, because, because, you know, basically, this is a perversion of Freudian psychology. This whole idea of Oedipus being about everyone wanting to kill their fathers and uh, go to bed with their mothers. This is a this is a perversion of Freud taken up by Lacan. And Deleuze and Guattari are rightly attacking it because it, it has no basis. Even in myth, it is um, the normal case is the hero's initiation. Oedipus is, according to Gao uh, in Oedipus the Philosopher, it, it's, a, it's an anomaly that, the, that, that people fail the hero's initiation and then they become philosophers like Oedipus. So, you know, I, I just think we need to keep these things in mind so that we're, you know, the attack is, is worthy and, you know, it's worth attacking this because it's not, uh, you know, it, it's not a reality. It's a, it's a, it's a very rare anomaly. But but Freud and Lacan made it like it was everything, and basically, Deleuze and Guattari are going through and saying, "No, it's not everything. It's it, it's uh, it doesn't even exist, really." I mean, I think no, but I mean, in terms of like within an ontological status of Oedipus, I mean, I I, I don't yeah, I mean, in terms of. The thing is that it's 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 almost virtual, right? As they say, it's in the sense it's it's a potential in a way, in the sense that uh, the problem is that it never needed to happen, but it happened, and you know somehow somehow we suffer from this del- very special delirium, or we uh, it never ha- it had to happen, but somehow these desires were created. Right, but they're acted out very rarely, and and most people don't have them, so. You know, I mean, the 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 thing is that uh, I mean, we just need to keep this in mind that there are so, something. What happened was that Freud decided to 
um, in order to gain fame, concentrate on sexuality, which was a taboo to talk about. And so he talked about it. So, of course, he, he, everyone was interested. But, but he had these very perverse ideas where he projected adult desires on children. And that became a, a, a kind of uh, a fad in our society. And so, uh, and Lacan took up that fad and kind of critiqued it, did a kind of uh, deconstruction of Freudianism, but kept many of the central tenets and made them worse in some way by this whole idea of lack being ontological. And, yeah, but- uh, and, so, and so Deleuze and Guattari are rightly attacking that, but it's, it doesn't mean, just because it's a fad in, in our society doesn't mean there's any reality to it on the ground. Yeah, but I mean, isn't one of the problems though the fact that uh, the fact that desire can be controlled so easily? I mean, in terms of the desires that desire keeps getting almost manipulated so easily, right? In the case that, and and I think part of their point is that there is a problem of edipalization in that regard. Well, I think yeah. I think that their point about repression is uh, there's plenty of repression happening. The, the fact that it's all interpreted through Oedipus by psychoanalysis is a perversion. But, but just naturally, there is a lot of uh, repression occurring because that's, you know, I mean, Nietzsche's all about, uh, all for repression. <laughs> you know, it's, but, it's what uh, civilized as far as Nietzsche's concerned. What do you mean by naturally, though? I feel like... What is- I mean, I feel like that's something the looking Gatari might disagree with, actually. What? Uh, say it again. What do you mean by naturally? Like repression is naturally. That seems way. That seems Freudian almost. That repression is naturally. Does I mean repression is natural? Well, I think if you look around at at any society, some kind of repression is going on. That's what I mean. I, I don't mean that it happens out of nature. Yeah, I mean that's that's the whole thing where social repression is primary. So now, I think they're right about that, and I think that that's what we should look at. And the the fact the fact that it's constellated by psychoanalysis in into Oedipus is a kind of like marginal phenomena. But 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 if you really want to, I mean that's why I think that Foucault's refocusing on fascism in the uh pro, uh, you know in the preface was very helpful at least it was helpful for me because the, this book really is about fascism in general and that repre- that repression that's kind of like in every society um you know is it, it has a fascistic uh kind of uh It, it, it there, there, if it's taken to an extreme, it becomes a fascism. Do uh, Deleuze and Guattari uh, talk about any difference between repression and uh, sort of just filtering one's experience, like how how the mind filters out perception to make a, I don't know something coherent 
what do you mean? What do you mean by sorry? Can you mean by filtering? What do you mean by filtering? Um, so like one uh, phenomena of it is the tea party effect, where like you can hear your name being called, or like right now me being able to uh, not me being able to shift my focus from the sound, the video game sound, uh, to like trying to talk about and hear myself talk about uh, this. Um, Cause like, uh, you know, say you have, so there's, there's like a trauma theory thread to the Oedipus. Uh, and that's like, I guess would be, psychic repression but i still don't see how you would delineate that from social repression because like the trauma comes from a social relationship or whatever and then from the institutionalization of that uh that nuclear family social relationship but um i mean there's clearly a difference between uh the way the mind tries to make coherent a uh an overwhelming experience by like uh, reducing it down to size and uh, between, you know, like, like social, like fascistic repression. So I was just wondering if Deleuze and Watery talked about that, if they make that difference at all, because that seems to be different from how they talk about psychic and social repression and that it's not quite repression, but it can be completed with it. I think that is a theme, more of a theme in logic of sense and difference and repetition than it is here. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think what Leibniz said, minute perceptions and stuff like that, he talks about that pretty explicitly in uh, uh, difference and repetition, actually, right? That there, there are all these minute perceptions in these, and the way the way the the cognition. Uh, uh, process all that. But that's that's a whole nother discussion, and that goes into passive synthesis, where the subject is placed it placed in time rather than time being placed in the subject. But I, I don't know. I've not seen that much of that in anti Oedipus yet, at least in my regard. And it would be helpful if if they had discussed that here. It would have been helpful because that you know you know i mean basically there's there's a kind of filtering that goes on like for instance if you're in a coffee shop and you're talking to someone you filter out all the other noise so that you can hear the person and that and that for instance if you have hearing aids you can't the microphones won't can't do that kind of filtering and so uh so the people I've heard, uh, you know, because I have friends who have this problem, uh, that people with hearing aids, they have a hard time having talks and conversations in coffee shops. So so that kind of filtering, which is kind of like, uh, you know, more biologically based, is different from repression. Repression is when you have some kind of natural urge, natural in quotes, and uh, you know you you try to dis- distract from that or deny it or other people so, deny. Top guy, Yeah. 
I was going to say, it might help, and I apologize if, if everyone already went over this, it might be worth looking at some of the things they write on page 172 and 173, because um, I think their main point is that we shouldn't let the representation be taken as the repression. We shouldn't confuse the two in the same way that Marxism would say we shouldn't confuse value with price. Um, it seems to me an extremely similar point. So they, they write at the bottom of 172. But this, I'm um, sorry, but, and this is something altogether different. The general social repression, psychic repression, gives rise to an Oedipal image as a disfiguration of the repressed. The fact that this image, in turn, finally suffers a repression, that it comes to take the place of the repressed or of the thing that is effectively desired, insofar as sexual repression is directed at something other than incest, such is the long history of our society. But the repressed is not first of all the Oedipal representation. What is repressed is desiring production. It is the part of this production that does not enter into social production or reproduction. It is what would introduce disorder and revolution into the socius, the non-coded flows of desire, the part that passes on the contrary from desiring production to social production forms a direct sexual investment of this social production without any repression of a sexual nature of the symbolism and the corresponding affects, and above all, without any reference to an Oedipal representation that could be held to be originally repressed or structurally foreclosed. The animal in us is not merely the object of a pre-conscious investment determined by interest, but the object of a libidinal investment of desire that only secondarily derives an image of the father from desiring production. So like in a, in a large sense, um, I, I think what they're basically getting at here is that um, desiring production is what's repressed socially, right, and psychically. And so Oedipus works as a representation, and the, the, the incest taboo, even in this society, I think, um, although certainly not in the same way, but the incest taboo seems to work as a way of um, repressing desiring production, and the Oedipal representation seems to be one of those agents of dispatch upon the family that they talked about, and I think it was 2.8. Um, yeah, go over so, this. Good. No, go go over this again. But like the, it's it's a semiotic system what they have here, right? You have a signifier which is the repressing representation. So in this scenario, it'll be the prohibition of incest, right? And the, the then you have a displaced representative, which is the the displaced representative is the essentially the what you call it the signified, which is the distorted image of desire produced by the representation itself. And so I don't know for them it might be like Oedipus complex, and uh, then you have the referent or the I think that what they're referring to as referent is the repressed representative, which is the real flow of desiring production, right? It's the flow of desiring production at that primordial, syllogistic, uh, correct use of the synthesis level, right? Uh, so, you know, what really gets repressed by the prohibition is completely different from the false image produced by the prohibition. So, and desire is almost like it's placed onto an erroneous signified, and that's belonging to the prohibitive. It belongs to the prohibitive system of representation rather than desire itself. Uh, 
So it's, it's instead of being like you know, it's not it's not that you're repressed from the incest prohibition. It's edipalization it, it, is produced by it, and then it's repressed after that, after 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 the desires. So after the uh, as after the repressing representation creates the desire, you desire also gets repressed back at the third stage by the uh, the that 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 uh, that repression itself because you know then you already have an incest prohibition on top of you to not do that and so you repress it. Right, and that's what they. That's why I think that's why they refer to it as a falsified image meant to trap desire. Uh, and uh, you know, I think one example of this is like I, I gave it last time. Right, it's the example of Buchanan gives this example too. It's that of uh, uh, it's it's that of sex before marriage. Right, I think in the U.S. it was considered pretty degenerate to have sex before marriage, and it was it was frowned uh, frowned down upon. And essentially, but you know, the desire to have sex before marriage was created. It's, it's, it's you know, it's 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 a, it's that prohibition that makes it possible for you to transgress now. And you know, then then it goes back to guilt, right? And so that's what you wanted. Desire feels guilty, so that's what you wanted. Yeah, and they they conclude that paragraph writing: We have already seen how the prohibition of incest referred not to Oedipus, but to the non-coded flows that constitute desire and to their representative, the intense prepersonal flow. As for Oedipus, it is another way of coding the uncodable, of codifying what eludes the codes, or of displacing desire in its object, a way of entrapping, which I think you've explained really well, right? But it means that, um, to add to that, again, we're seeing that fear of non-coded flows of desire and the way that that's going to have an intense prepersonal flow getting displaced on Oedipus, the uh, representative of that. It also speaks to, like, there's very clearly a fear that this is going to make its way to the socius. And there's a, there's, it seems to me like a social repression, psychic repression at this level, are very much about um, preserving something in the socius and trying to deal with a non-coded flow of desire that's actually being anticipated in some sense. Yeah, so, I mean I just want to I just want to mention that this 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 phrase uh, the general social repression psychic repression system gives rise to the Oedipal image as a disfiguration of the repressed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I I would cling to that as a you know, evidence in the text that, or what I was talking about before. But I mean, I, I see them as saying that the desire is created, that essentially all these desires get created. I see them saying the image, the, the sentence immediately following Kent, uh, what Cameron is the fact that this image in turn finally suffers a repression, that it comes to take the place of the repressed or of the thing that is effectively desired insofar as sexual repression is directed at something other than incest, such as the long history of our society. There's a way that this repression, this image goes into circulation. And I think that's what the struggle is here too, is like, um, I, I think I'm getting out of this that a desire, an Oedipal desire is not created, but the Oedipal representation goes into circulation um, as a paragilistic 
or like as a signifier in this regard, even though the desiring production, what might be going on that moment is something like the, the, uh, an alliance interest or something like that. Like, although that would still be a form of codification, but because this is uncodified desire, it seems to me that this is a way of trying to codify it and deal with it. Um, in anticipation of some trouble it could cause. So I, that's kind of how I'm reading it. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, it, it's, uh, it's a case to uh, point is that essentially the representation is created, right? That the fact is the represent... But I think the key thing here, at least in my reading, is that the problem that they're responding to is the creation of desire and desire desiring its own repression, right? It's desire that's going into locales that it really doesn't need to be going into that's from the creation of the signifier or the image or whatever you want to call it um and in that regard it's a because you know anti-production right anti-production it frees the it so the uh you know it's it's anti-production leads to leads to allows the organism to essentially and you know you take the example of the schizophrenic table as the table is being produced, it's a, a new thing can only be produced via if there is a for if there is anti-production that first disjuncts them, and uh, when that primary disjunction of anti-production occurs, that there's it, the problem is that it also records it, and mm-hmm. these these edipalized representations can also be recorded, and that's the big issue that we're dealing with here. Yeah, and then it goes into circulation, right? Uh, yeah. Or like the, you know, the, the, the point of it becoming a signifier. Yeah, I think that's the problem that they're trying to respond to. Yeah, and in that sense too, like desire, so at the very end, I think I read this, um, of displacing desire and its object, a way of entrapping them. Right, it also seems to be a way of like, not just trying to deal with uncoded flows, but trying to put them in a perimeter or the, the triangle again, but like there seems to be this um this fear that you've got to like preserve these um the, these structures and that by sort of foreclosing desiring production and that and something like the Oedipal representation as a, a kind of psychic repression and the taboo um the incest taboo is a larger social repression seem to have that mutually uh, enforcing relationship to do that. I do struggle with that myself, though. Like, does that idea of des- uh, desire desiring its own repression, especially if desire is always revolutionary, I mean, I think this whole idea of desire revolution, I, I, this is only going to come out a bit later. So they've barely talked about it until now. Uh, until uh, I think they're going to bring about it late, a little later. I think that's the, that's the goal of uh, Section 4. At least that's mm. my assumption. I've not read it yet. But uh, at least that's what I think was going to come out of it in the sense that... Yeah, they like to, they, they like to throw their bold, controversial statements out. But they don't talk much about it until a bit later so i think we're going to see that come out a bit later too so so there's an idea of uh 
guy named Waddington, and I don't know how to pronounce it. It's like Chiod or Chiord. Anyway, what it is is like a riverbed that, um, you know, is is formed by, you know, multiple inundations and the river moving over time and so forth. Um, and so there, there's there's this idea that that when you do things over and over in a repetitive manner, they uh, you 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 kind of force down the same path. Uh, you know, things get aligned so that the easiest route is uh, you know through through the river channel, and uh, and then those cha- that channel is dynamic because it moves around. And so, you know, if, if if we think about that in terms of this idea of uh, the social and psychic repression, that basically that system is like that, uh, those, those uh, riverbeds or those pathways of least resistance that get set, set up by society. And then, and then, you know, Oedipus is this disfigured repression. Uh, you know, it, it 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 it's setting up something which is an anomaly that's an extreme case that allows the phenomena to be talked about, but is not the phenomena itself. And uh, you know, it's the extreme cases that always get the attention. And then, and then, if you think of the the decoded flows as if you know, if you've got a flood, you know, the water goes just everywhere. You know, it does, the channel gets forgotten, and a lot of times, a new channel will be produced by a new flood. So the the uncoded desires are like the flood water. Right. Yeah. The dissociates can't codify it. It's basically too much. It's like the yeah. It's like the so it's also it's like the the opposite of the miraculating inscription, right? It's mm-hmm. that it's that it's the other it's uh, not like the paranoiac mission where it can't be uh, coded onto. It's just outflowing. Uh, then I guess the thing is that um, yeah, I think we need to also remember, right? It's 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 not. We need to both understand code and flow together, at least in terms of our examples, because we can't have, it's not that we have a flow first and we have a code on top of it. They're both coextensive with each other. Mm-hmm. What, what do you guys make of this, um, this statement? The animal in us is not merely the object of a pre-conscious investment determined by interest, but the object of a libidinal investment of desire that only secondarily derives an image of the father from desiring production. Because the, you know, the, the, it's talking about the other half of the myth where the, where the, the sons killed the father. You know, that's how, that's how the name of the father gets set up. The sons killed the father. And so it's the name of the father that becomes the, uh, you know, none of the sons can take the replace, the, the place of the father. And so, the name of the father becomes the sign under which the repression takes place in the 
in this Freudian mythology. Yeah, I think I agree with you. Because it, it looks like, to me what I'm getting out of is like, so the the animal in us, right, uh, the, the body or, or uh, the person, it's not that we're an object of a pre-conscious investment of interest, right? It's that we're a libidinal investment of desire uh, or that we're the object of a libidinal investment of desire. So like when desire and production is happening, it's not by a pre-conscious investment of desire. So like uh, with the father or with the mother, it's not like it's something pre-conscious that we're, we're taking the object for. It's that libidinal investments of desire are, um, are taking those objects and therefore something like the father and, and the image you just described, Kent, those uh, those images are secondarily derived from the libidinal investments of desiring production. So, so what's weird about this is be, is that there is a you know kind of general mammalian instinctual plan, you know, where. You know, some species, the, uh, you know, the, the alpha male has a territory and he has a harem within that territory that he tries to keep control of. And then the, the beta males come in and try to knock off the, the, uh, the alpha male. There's a bimodal, there's these gamma males that aren't, don't compete for territory. They're just out in, in the wilds and there's gamma type females that are not part of the and um, so so the interesting thing about that is that that is kind of uh, can be seen could be seen as the the the, the like basis of matriarch because the the whole point of matriarchy is that Reproduction is a scarce resource, so you can't you can't afford to trade women around in an exchange network because it's too valuable resource. So the the, the females are kept at home, and uh, and the husbands visit, and then patriarchy the females go to. The family of husband farmed so it's like the 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 uh you know this mammalian extinction uh instinctual pattern and i don't know how widespread it is in man tell you the truth but that pattern seems to be kind of like more the basis of matriarchy than patriarchy and patriarchy seems to be a departure from that. I think you're turning into a robot, Jack. Anyway, um, 
I just like to mention that there is this very interesting thing about the transition from matriarchy to patriarchy, which is that in in, in patriarchy the the harem is like a herd, um, which is herded by the alpha male, and the and the females within that herd uh, are all undifferentiated from each other. And in patriarchy, when the uh, the the veil is a big part of the and the and the pulling back of the veil is a big part of the marriage ceremony, uh, that has to do with the face of the female mattering suddenly in patriarchy. And so there's just this very interesting thing which is in our marriage ceremonies today that is about the transition from matriarchy to patriarchy. Just, uh, you know, it's fascinating how culture keeps all of these artifacts. So, so I mean, the whole point of me telling you that is that there may be some biological basis for what Freud was talking about, but the way that he made it the uh, basis of everything, you know, that, that's completely wrong. Yeah, but I mean, I, I think that's seen in his reading of uh, anatomy and stuff. How so? I, I don't remember. I actually forget. But I, I think uh, to pull it up, but I re- I re- I've read somewhere. But I'm really not well, well read in Freud by any definition. I think that shows. But I read somewhere that uh, Freud, I mean, for when he was coming up with erogenous Jones or phallic stages and stuff, he did a lot of analysis with anatomy to understand how they correlate. I think you see this also with uh, Lacan's concept of the phallus, even though the phallus is the non-penis. Conceptually, there's this is the basis of anatomy that they're analyzing. Right. So, yeah, so you're making kind of the same point, that there there is something about human finitude that gets reflected into this Oedipal uh, myth. But the the way that is reflected into that myth, um, you know, it, it becomes this disfigured image of uh, of desire because the 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 whole thing is that uh, with the move from you know the animal basis to culture, you know, the a lot of these things become freed up so that you can have all kinds of structures in human desire that just are not don't come directly out of the instinctual basis you know and i just think it's important to keep that in mind you know this that that there is something to the oedipus but it's definitely this distorted image that is just just happened to be what Freud seized upon and made universal when it wasn't necessarily anything universal about it. Yeah, but I, I don't know. My reading is the whole point of distorted image is the problem that desire is going into a locale of this manner. And in in this sense, we are repressed. And that hence the f- problem is that, you know, Freud thought it was actual rather than virtual in a way. Yeah, could be.
Anyway, anyway, I just like to reiterate that you know, in these last two chapters we we read, uh, there's a lot of detail in here, which you know we could really only talk about if we actually went out and read the the basic books in this area. We're kind of uh, flirting with it, but um, but the the whole point of this is that if you go and look at the actual data that we have on these things that Lacanian theory just doesn't make any sense. I mean, I think that's their major point. Well, I mean, I think it's the question of genealogy and Genesis and where does some of this, all this stuff come from? And that's the great, that's the great thing about this chapter is we're going to go through history and understand the question of genealogy and, you know, I mean, the whole, you know, Deleuze's philosophy could honestly be summed up by just one word, right? Uh, becoming or Genesis. The whole point is that, you know, the way he reads Kant's categories to consider the genesis of Kant's categories and all these other things, uh, it's it's all about, you know, and then you go into the pre-individual level for Deleuze, and that's coming from Simon Don, but uh, it's, it's essentially about genesis at the end of the day. So, you know, everything needs to be created. Like for Deleuze's reading of Spinoza, it's the expressionism, which is the imminent cause and God and all that. But uh, they're going to look for... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to respond to that. But they're going to look for... Uh, essentially, they're going to look for... You know, I don't, I don't think they actually deny anything. Like I think what they're doing is... Well, I mean, yeah, you've, I, I'm using the word deny here very specifically. Right? They are denying a lot of stuff, but they're going to say we have to understand from the point of creation how are these things produced. It's kind of like the way you can think about it is that they're drawing a line in the sand of what they knew at that point, and they're going to take positions on it, and they're bringing Keynesianism in to to critique both uh, uh, Marx and Freud, which is a big advance. And so, you know, there's, there's, there's two things that have to be considered was, given the evidence that they had at their time, did their theory make sense? And then now that, now that we know the things that we know today, does the theory make sense? And I think their major point is that given what they knew during their time, Lacan's did not make sense, and that it needs a lot more study to come up with cross-cultural ways of looking at these things, and also just within our own culture, it doesn't make sense. That was, you know. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I, but you know, I'm not so staunch in the idea that they are disagreements. Like, I still hold pretty. I, I never. I don't think Deleuze actually ever wrote a critique. I'm over exaggerating here, but I think it would be very. Uh... Wait, sorry, Lou, you're trying to say something. Uh, I I think it's it's bad form to assume that you can reduce these points to something that would be very easy to say like um, if we are just talking about an empirical uh, investigation into how valid is psychoanalysis how valid is Lacan's uh, psychoanalysis that would be very easy and much easier than what they are actually writing here and I know there's this suspicion that 
they just write obscure because for the sake of it. But I think they are trying to actually do something here that warrants the complexity of the work. And reducing this to this to this um to this um, refutation on an empirical basis is a bit wonky, I think. And the other thing is, so I can't really, like this is something that I've observed throughout the session. I think there's a tendency in specifically what you're doing, Kent, that to fall back onto a very classical structuralist reading of this that would fits better towards Levi-Strauss than to any of the post-structuralists. Um, I'd be careful in that direction. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think that's my basic tendency. Also, I agree with you that um, you know, I, I, I'm not commenting in what I said before, I'm not commenting on what they're actually trying to get at so much as the critique of Lacan that's implicit in like uh, the name of the father. But but I, I agree with you that they are they are doing something significant here that goes beyond that. And I think that where that comes up in the text is where they talk about uh, it was near where we stopped. These limits. When they talk about the different kinds of limits, you've got the absolute limit, the relative limit, the, the, the real limit, the imaginary limit, the displaced limit. That, I think, there they're doing something significant that goes beyond just the critique of Kant. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing is to understand. I mean, I think what makes them so complex is I think they're actually affirming everything. I mean, they're affirming Oedipus complex, but then they're going to ask the question of how it is created. And then when we ask the question, the you know, these these pre-individual questions of how it was created, it's, or these, oper- rather than structural, they're operational questions of how these things are created. We understand of, you know, the, the primary goal actually is not to critique. The primary goal, in my opinion, for everything Deleuze and even Gattari wrote was always to create something new, the creation of concepts. And, you know, as Todd May gives this example of the French Impressionist painters who just by creating stuff rather than uh, going against uh, the old the old guard of the classes, they, they achieve something new and naturally kill off the classes, right? It's a sense that uh, the goal is to create concepts at the end of the day that are... Uh, that, that, that have a purpose and uh, it's not a teleological function but it's uh, it's the fact that these things are doing it and th- th- I agree with Lou I agree with that 100% because it is the sense that it's uh, it's it is uh, um, it, it needs to be un- understood in the sense that it is very complex and nuanced and, which is much harder to understand from the sense that they're affirming everything but uh, you know they're affirming that there is an Oedipus complex and they're just not just saying oh it's just a bunch of I think I brought that point up last time also when I was talking about the contemporary understanding of, you know, psychoanalysis and stuff. But, uh, and, you know, it's, it asks a much deeper question, in my opinion, of uh, how, how are these things produced?
you know, you could read this to say, yeah, it says schizophrenia is the absolute limit and capitalism is the relative limit. So th those are two kinds of limits. And then then they they said, they talk about the, uh, when you start talking about it in terms of money, flows of money, flows of production, that's the real limit. And then they have this imaginary limit. And then the fifth one, uh, Oedipus is the displaced limit. Yes, Oedipus is universal. So, I mean, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I understand that, but I think it's very interesting. And, you know, but, but I'd say that's the positive thing that they're doing, distinguishing these different kinds of limits. Yeah. Okay, I think with that, uh, we reached the two-hour mark, so I'm going to have to tell Craigbot to leave just so Brooks doesn't have to have any editing problems. But, uh, sure. Yeah, it was a great discussion. Yeah, thank you very much. <laughs>